The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. All right, shall we get into the Word? Let's do it. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark 10, 32. Mark 10, 32. If Jesus were here this morning and he asked you this question, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer? If he asked you that, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? Yes, yes, you, Jesus is asking you that question. What goes through your mind when you think about that? Like what rises to the top? You're like, you think, you know, like, do I only get one request? You know, he's asking, do I get three? Is this like one of those genie things? Is, are there limits to it? Do I, you know, is there, is there a catch here? You know, is there, okay, you give me this, but now what do I have to do? Like, you know, what goes through your mind as you hear that question? What rises to the top? A physical need? A financial need? Salvation need? If Jesus were to ask you this question, what do you want me to do for you how would you answer that? You write it down in your notes if you want. Maybe you're unsure. Maybe it's you're caught off guard, and so you just say, well, I don't know. I have to think about that. But this very question Jesus asks in our passage today on two very different occasions. After he uh, predicts, he teaches his disciples a third time about what's to come in his life. He asks his two disciples, James and John, this very question, what do you want me to do for you? And then, and then he also asks the same question of a blind man named Bartimaeus. He asks two very different groups of people the same exact question. Would you join me in Mark 10, verse 32? And how about I read our passage for us and we can get the details, shall we? Mark 10, 32 begins this way. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word for God's people. Here in our passage this morning, we have another portrait of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have before us here another portrait uh, of who Jesus is and what he came to do. We have another answer really to the question, who is this Messiah And what has he done? And I hope that you got the sense as we uh, read through these verses that Jesus has come with a definite plan and purpose. That he was a man on a mission, a very specific mission, and it is a mission that transforms us. It is a mission that has an effect. It is a mission that had worldwide and everlasting consequences. And so that's why we can say, as we look at these first few verses, is that the cross transforms me. Jesus came with a definite purpose, and that purpose transforms us. The cross transforms me. Join me in verse 32 as we take a closer look here. It says, they are on the road headed to Jerusalem. You know, for 10 chapters now, we've seen uh, Jesus on this journey, picking up his disciples and then taking them along, moving through uh, various regions. But now here in verse 32, we know the final destination. They are heading to Jerusalem. And as they are going, look what it says here, that Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, Mark's not just commenting on like the order, you know, like a kindergarten classroom or something, and you have the line leader, and they're the person that falls away. No, no, it's not like that. He is the one who is leading the way, setting the tone. He knows what's ahead, and he is facing it head on. See, Jesus has predicted what's going to happen when he reaches Jerusalem twice already, and now a third time uh, in our verses. But Jesus doesn't run from trouble, does he? When it's time to meet trouble, Jesus always faces it head on. He doesn't run. He's come for a purpose. And you can be sure that if you find trouble in your life, that he will walk with you through it to meet the trouble head on. Take comfort. Take heart. But what's both amazing and terrifying here at the same time is that Jesus just heads right into Jerusalem. See, it kind of works backwards. He's heading to Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. But then you maybe kind of found that odd here in 32. It says, they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. They're amazed and terrified at the same time because they know what they're walking into. They're amazed at Jesus' courage but terrified by the events. And so like a good teacher... Like a good parent or a coach, Jesus prepares his disciples once again. He goes over the plan another time. Do you see that? 
See, he tells them exactly what they are walking into in verse 33. He says, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem. Remember we've been through this? Have you ever done this with your kids as you're taking them into a new experience or something? You're going into a store and you told them at home and you've given them the prayer and then you hear, and or you're taking them to the doctor and so you're like, okay, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna walk in, we're gonna have to check in. The doctor's gonna come in, he's gonna listen to your heart, all those things. He's prepping them multiple times and he is saying the same thing. He's preparing them and telling them in verse 33 and 34 here that, hey, we're going to Jerusalem refers to himself again, his favorite title in Mark, to refer to himself as the Son of Man, that reference from Daniel 7, as we've seen many times. And here's what's going to happen. He's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. The spiritual authorities of the day are going to reject him. They're going to reject him. He will be betrayed. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over as a criminal to the secular authorities. And they then, verse 34, they're gonna mock him. They'll spit on him. They'll flog him brutally and they will kill him. All events that we are about to see as we continue to make our way through Mark. But he doesn't stay dead, does he? Because what happens also? He will rise. And when we take all of this in, these are details that are familiar to us if we've been around the Christian faith for any length of time, right? But can you imagine being in their shoes, how uh, amazed they would be? Uh, I can't believe that your courage, how you're doing this. I can't believe this. And how terrified that these things are about to happen. No wonder. It really causes us to sit back as we look here and as we take in our, our, our passage that we just read, as, as we ask this question, well, what do you want me to do for you? It asks, causes us to ask the question, well, what did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? What was his plan? What was his purpose? Well, our passage here, our verses give us really three reasons as to why he did come. There are many in the scriptures, but the first one, he came, why? To be betrayed, beaten, and killed. The verses that we just saw. If you're taking notes, you can uh, jot these things down. Why did, what did Jesus come to do? To be beaten, killed, and then rise again. To conquer death. He came on a mission He was born, as we uh, think about Christmas, this Christmas season. Well, why was he born? Well, he came with that at the end of his life. But what did that accomplish? That's what it was. But what did he come to do? The second, well, he came to redeem his people. In verse 45, it says, for even the Son of Man, there it is. Why did he come? He came not to be served, but to serve thereby setting an example for all of us on how we are to live our life, but even more so, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus came. What did he come to do? He came to redeem his people. He came, as we sung this morning, to set his people free. He paid the ransom. And don't believe the, you know, the, the, those out there that say he paid a ransom to Satan. You know, that Satan needed, we needed to be bought off of Satan. No, he came to pay our debt for offending God. He took the wrath of the Father for us. He was a ransom for his children. He paid our debt. See, here's the thing. When we offend God, somebody has to pay the debt. Somebody has to pay the consequences. Somebody uh, for offending God, for our offense, has to pay it. And either we will, through eternity, separated from God in hell, or Christ did it on the cross. He came Why did he come? To be a ransom for many. Third reason we see in the passage is he came to offer mercy to the helpless. What is mercy? 
Mercy is having a rightful punishment withheld from us. Mercy is not receiving what we have earned, what we deserve. And Christ came to offer mercy to the helpless by being betrayed, beaten, killed, rising again. He came and offered mercy and being a ransom of standing in our place. This is what Jesus came to do. And this is why we say the cross transforms us. Because when we embrace this, when we embrace the reality of why Jesus came, if anything, then when we understand what Jesus came to do, the mission that he was on, it should then influence how we answer that question, what do you want me to do for you? So Jesus came to save us from ourselves, not to make us better versions of ourselves, not to give us uh, more material things. No, he came to give us new life through new birth, through uh, the transforming and transforming us into new creations with new hearts. If you've experienced that, give me an amen, right? If that is true of you, say amen. But if you're not, if you're unsure, if you're holding out, I would ask like, what is holding you back? Ultimately, it's unbelief, but maybe it's your skepticism. What's holding you back? Jesus is asking, what do you want me to do for you? And if that question both amazes and terrifies you, you're probably in the right place and ask him for a transformed heart. This morning would be a great morning to do just that. Ask the Lord for a transformed heart as you come to him. And so we see this, the cross transforms us. Jesus predicts it three times, or the third time here, that what is about to happen, and they are pressing into Jerusalem. And we see that the cross, the uh, events that were about to happen, have a significant impact onto people's lives. They transform us. And the, the two pictures here that we get of James and John and Bartimaeus are two pictures of just how Jesus transforms us. Look at here the first one in verse 35. We go from this, we go from hearts of self ambition to joyful service. Hearts of selfish ambition to joyful service. This is a way that the cross transforms us. This is a way that Jesus, as a result of what he came to do, has an effect in our life. We get to verse 35 then. Jesus has said this, and James and John just kind of bump right into it, and they didn't quite comprehend Jesus' previous lessons, did they? We saw just a you know, a couple passages ago that Jesus is telling them as they're clamoring for who would be the greatest, they were arguing among themselves, and he's teaching them, hey, you need to deny the desire to be the first. You need to just put that away. You're not the first. You're not the greatest. You're not the best. And they apparently didn't quite get this as they come to uh, Jesus now. They didn't quite get it. It's like most of us, right? These sinful tendencies are deeply rooted in us. It takes multiple attempts, multiple lessons until we fully get it. We may be able to articulate it. We may understand it in our mind and say, oh yeah, like I'm not the best. I don't need to do that. But, but, but we, in our hearts, it takes a little time. It takes God's tender, sanctifying teaching by his spirit as we sit under his word to really root these tendencies out and these desires to be the greatest. Isn't it an audacious question that they ask Jesus? You know, they just show up to him. Hey, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, right? You ever been asked that by your kids? And they come up to you, I want you to say yes. 
well, what's the question? <laughs> right? They just kind of come, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And I, I just almost can't even fathom asking that question of Jesus, but they had a close relationship with him, and Jesus doesn't really bat an eye. He says, well, what do you want me to do for you? The question of the hour. They make an audacious request. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory. They didn't really understand. You know, it's interesting, in Matthew's account of this, they actually send their mom to ask this question. <laughs> She's probably in the mix here. Somewhere. But they apparently really wanted it. They wanted the place of family honor. These were ambitious young guys. They were ambitious. They, they wanted this place of family honor. You know, in those days, if you were the king, you would uh, set your most trusted advisors, your second and third in command. You would put those that were in your charge right next to you on the throne. And those were usually occupied places of family members, brothers or cousins or something like that that would sit next to you. And there's some uh, uh, reason to believe that James and John were probably Jesus' cousin even. Don't know that for sure, but it could have been, but whatever they wanted, they wanted this place of honor. They were ambitious, and yet they had no idea what they were asking. All right, don't you love Jesus' answer? You don't, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. It's again, it's like kids asking, right? They ask a complex question about, you know, who knows what, and you're just like, yeah, in like 10 years, I might be able to explain that to you, but right now, where did you hear that question, by the way? In the playground? Who's talking to you about that stuff? But they didn't understand. What did they not understand? They didn't understand the pathway to honor. They didn't understand that the pathway to honor comes through suffering. He says that that's what, that's what he's referring to here. There's some confusing language right here. Look at verse 38. He says, are you able to drink the cup I drank? Be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. That's like a tongue twister right there, y'all. Say that. Go home this afternoon, read your Bible, and say that verse as fast as you can. Baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Whew. Took some practice this week. But what is he referring to here? What is, it, what is he talking about? Well, these are idioms or expressions of that day to fully experience the lot that God had set before them. To take the cup, Jesus would use this same expression in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was approaching death, as he's about to be betrayed, and he was uh, sweating the drops of blood under stress, and he's praying to the Lord, let this cup pass from me. And so you can see the expression of, of it like as someone hands you the cup, it is you're taking it from the Lord and fully experiencing it. This idea of baptism is uh, kind of put out of your mind, the idea of water baptism. What we do uh, when we are saved to per, uh, publicly profess our uh, salvation, which by the way is coming in January. If you've not been baptized and you've just come to faith, you're a believer, if you've not been belie- baptized as a believer, um, come see me after the service because should be baptized. But that's not what he's talking about here, okay? That was just a commercial break. It's not what he's talking about. Well, better idea here, the, the, the idea of baptism, the, the actual meaning of this word is to be immersed, to be dunked, to be fully in. And so Jesus is saying, he's saying, can you, uh, you, what you're asking is to sit in the place of honor that I will have, but the pathway to that comes through suffering. Do you want to, uh, are you able to suffer and die like I will? This is what he's asking them. Are you able to suffer and die like I will? And in verse 38, they're like, or 39 rather, they're like, yeah, we're able. <laughs> yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And it is true 
but they, I think they really had no concept of what they were uh, agreeing to. Yeah, yeah, we can't. We will walk with you. We will follow uh, hard after you. We will follow the same pathway. And Jesus' words are pretty awesome here because he's like, you're right, you will. You will drink the cup. I will. You, I don't think you realize what you're agreeing to or you think you can do, but you will. And what we find as church history goes is that James was actually the first disciple to be martyred. He's the first one to suffer and be killed. You can read about it in Acts chapter 12. And John was the very last one. He lived a long life. He was eventually exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation and God had some plans he needed to write the gospel of John and some letters of John and the you know, apocalyptic uh, book of Revelation. But he would be the last one. These two of Jesus' disciples, as kind of the bookends, they would walk the path of suffering and die for the Lord. But they didn't fully understand it at that point. In their ambition to be honored, they didn't understand the pathway to honor comes through suffering, nor did they understand the person to bestow honor. And that was from the Father. Do you see that there? It says, it's not Jesus to grant. We see Jesus' uh, submission to the Father here. We see in his incarnation, uh, his, uh, his, his submission to the Father's plan, that is his job. The God the Father grants honor. So I can't do that. You can follow me through suffering, which is why I came, but I can't bestow that upon you. That comes from God. And as you can imagine here, who gets worked up? The other 10, right? It says they're indignant. If you get 12 young guys working on a project all together and two start plotting their own way to, you know, to get ahead or to be recognized or to get the credentials or whatever, what do you think is going to ensue? Yeah, there's going to be some that are indignant. There's going to be chaos and, and a bunch of drama that ensues. And so this is apparently what happens in the midst of their selfish ambition. But Jesus, as he always does, he quiets them, he takes advantage of the moment and teaches them some transforming leadership lessons. See, true power is through service. True greatness is godly humility. True influence is through sacrifice. And these are the words that he is teaching them. He's saying worldly leaders are really no different than what we have today. That's what he says. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And so when he's referring to Gentiles here, it's really just really referring to everybody else. You know, you have the Jewish people, and then the Gentiles, which was everybody, all right? Everybody else. We are, if you're not a Jewish person or of Jewish descent, then you're, you're a Gentile. It's the same way that we use in our own language, like there's Christians and then we use the, like the world, right? Worldly leaders, everybody else. And so he's saying, here, this is what is characteristic of those who lead. And many of us have worked for uh, bosses like this, who've used the title, the authority, the position for personal gain. They've had selfish ambitions and have used it uh, to uh, lord it over with domineering influence. Do what I say because I said so. Because I am the boss. Because I am the parent. And you gotta love Jesus' words here. His ever uh, countering words, but it shall not be so among you. Verse 43. As Christians as those who have been given a transformed 
heart to follow Christ. Take your selfish ambitions and let Christ turn it into joyful sacrifice, into joyful service. And Jesus said, this is why I came. This is why I came, and this is how you will be honored. Lose your life. Deny your selfish ambitions and channel that same ambition towards serving others. And not just as a servant for hire, but look at the word that he uses in verse 44, but as a slave, a slave that is owned. The lower you get, the greater you will be honored. The greater you will be honored. See, ambition isn't wrong. Selfish ambition is wrong. Using others to just gain power, to gain position is always wrong. But godly ambition is not. This isn't to say that as we follow believers, as we become Christ followers, that we just kind of sit back. We're apathetic people, right? I don't need to seek promotion. I don't need to seek to get ahead. I don't need to work with excellence. I don't need to be, uh, you know, the best at what God has gifted me with. Are we to be unambitious people? Absolutely not. We're to be zealous for good works. Want some ambition? There you go. We're to be growing in our understanding of who God is with fervor. We're to be, uh, we're to be growing in our uh, affections for Christ deeper and deeper every day with the type of godly ambition that honors him and has an effect on the people that are around us. And what joy then is infused into our service because we know that our master is good. That this is why even our master came. He, his mission had a purpose. Not to be the greatest but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. So we can serve one another with humble joy. And you know what the thing is? That's what makes us great. I'm among the Lord from the Father. He says, this is what makes you great. When you take your selfish ambitions and you turn that into joyful service towards, for the Lord and towards other people, it's what makes you great. This transforms us. It's what the, the cross, it came to transform our way of thinking. It came to transform our hearts. But there's a second way. Remember, he asked the same question in two very different, in two very different uh, occasions to two very different people. And not only does it take us from uh, hearts of selfish ambition to uh, joyful service, but it also takes us from being blind beggars to faithful followers. See, we are, the cross transforms both our heart and our sight. It's really one and the same reality as God does the work, just played out in two different ways. And so here the, the story kind of turns. They're on their way. They're heading to Jerusalem, but they have a stop where in verse 46? They came to Jericho. They came to Jericho. What's Jericho famous for? Kiddos, what, what do we know? What's, what happened at Jericho way before Jesus got there? They what? The walls, that's right. Do I remember that song? I don't think so from my childhood. The walls came tumbling down, something like that. Wasn't there a song like that? Yeah, that's right. Jericho's known for that. Um, but here it's also known as uh, this place where Bartimaeus lives. In this day, there was a thriving economy. There's actually two different locations. That What happened in the Old Testament, that city was actually destroyed. And so now there's a, a new, just a little bit away, uh, city of Jericho. And so Jesus is passing through there and it is thriving in this day. And on the edge of the city, it would be where the poor would line up every day. 
where they would line up uh, to, to beg from those that were traveling through, from uh, the people that lived there in the town that would come through. They would go and they would uh, sit at the edge of the city. And now Jesus is making his way through. He is traveling. And what always, whenever Jesus travels, what also accompanies him besides his disciples? A crowd. Everywhere Jesus goes, there is a crowd. And in the midst of the crowd that is around him, there is one man, Bartimaeus, who had an appointment with the Messiah that day. There's one man, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, who was sitting by the roadside and had an appointment. I love how verse 47 really has this intentional contrast of who Jesus is. If we ask this question, the first half, who is this man? Second half of Mark answers this question, who is this Messiah? And we see it wrapped up here nicely in verse 47. It says, we're told by Mark, he says, when he's heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, his earthly name, his man, where did he come from? He came from Nazareth. Isn't this Jesus the Nazarene? And it had really a negative connotation. Can anything good come out of Nazareth was the saying of that day. And so we see kind of the the lowly human side of Jesus, but that's not how Bartimaeus addresses this man, this Messiah. How does he address him? As the Messiah, as the son of David, as David's greater son, as the Christmas king, As we think about this season and Jesus coming, this was the long-awaited king who they had waited for to come to rescue them. The one who was prophesied about, you can read this this afternoon in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as God makes his covenant with David and and there's some fulfillments there in his coming in Solomon, but his greater son who would one day come and be a massive, major, life-changing messiah. We saw it prophesied in Jeremiah, actually. You'll see it then after uh, God tells David there in 2 Samuel that uh, the three major prophets, you see these prophecies about the son of David who would come. As you read in Isaiah 11, as we read this morning at our Advent reading from Jeremiah 23 and in Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24, you will see their expectation of this Christmas King, the son of David. And though Bartimaeus, though his eyes could not see the man from Nazareth, his spirit could see the son of God. I love the contrast here. And in the, vo- in the noise of the crowd, his voice pierces through the hum and the rising level of noise. His voice, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. See, the genuine cry of mercy always rises above the crowd. Like a mom who can pick out the, the, the cry of her child, right moms? Who can hear it in the midst of anything. So too Jesus picks out the cries of mercy from his children. He always, his ears are tuned to genuine cries of mercy. And I would say that even today, as Christ sits on his throne, encircled by the hosts of heaven who are crying out with loud voices, holy, 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 that there is one sound that blasts through that singing, and it is this, have mercy on me. And Christ always responds to our cries for mercy. He hears it through the crowd. He hears it as they're passing by him. And you can see the guys, right? Like, it's, it's, as you might expect, he's being rebuked, 
right? He's being rebuked. He's telling him, be, be quiet. Don't, don't say, you're making a fool of yourself. Be quiet. But he won't be silent. He won't be stopped. And as a matter of fact, the more they try to suppress him, the more desperate he is, then he knows that this is the Messiah. And he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops call him they call the blind man they, they, they now they're surprised they're like hey jesus is calling you take 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 heart be encouraged get up he's calling you and look at what he does in verse 50 look what look what happens look what happens he throws off his cloak the the importance of what he just did he can't see he's in the midst of a crowd this cloak was the only thing that would shield him from the cool breeze that night And now in in desperation, in the midst of the crowd, he throws off all the comforts and security that he would have. He throws it aside. He springs up with a new spring in his steps and he comes to Jesus. And there in verse 51, he gets asked the question of the hour. What do you want me to do for you? A man in a desperate situation, right? Why did Jesus come to offer mercy to the helpless and in response he just says rabbi a name for a teacher let me let me recover my side i want to see jesus does just that immediately he can see imagine the brilliance of the world flooding his eyes imagine the brilliance of salvation flooding his heart in that moment he can now see god has been merciful to him Jesus tells him, you can go your way. Your faith has made you well. You've been saved. He recovered his sight, but look, he tells him to go his own way, but Bartimaeus follows Christ on the way. See, Jesus' way now becomes Bartimaeus's way. He doesn't go his own way. He doesn't take the benefit and then just go off and do his own thing. The blind beggar, no, becomes a faithful follower. And see, Bartimaeus's story, uh, his coming to faith here represents all of us. You see this? If you're uh, following Christ today, this mirrors your own story. See, we were all once blind and helpless until we had an encounter with Jesus and we heard the good news of what Christ did. We found out, we heard that he was the son of David, the son of God who was beaten in our place, who died in our place and who rose again to conquer sin and death. And when we heard that, we cried for mercy and faith and were saved. And we were saved not to do our own thing, but to follow him. Don't you love this? Don't you love how uh, Jesus puts, these, uh, puts this man, how this guy's story is recorded in scripture for us? And you know what I love about these two porches is that we begin to understand ourselves as we look at them. As we see the events of what Christ did and we see, uh, we see James and John here and Bartimaeus, uh, too often we're just like James and John, Right? clamoring uh, for power. We're prideful in all the silliest of ways. We don't even understand what we're doing, what we are asking, when in reality, we're actually more like Bartimaeus, right? Harassed and helpless, blind to our own sin. Far too often, we're asking for honor when we should be begging for mercy. Far too often, we're seeking titles when a broom handle will fit just fine. But the reason we can understand ourselves, our own propensities, is because we understand Christ. 
And when we uh, understand what he came to do, that informs how we then answer the question, what do you want me to do for you? He's done the greatest thing that we could ever imagine. He came and laid down his life for us. We marvel at his mercy when we've been set free by his ransom. What, what, what does it do? It stirs in us greater worship, right? Stirs in us great, more, more passionate praise as the cross transforms the way that we see and the way that we sing, the way that we live our life. See, the cross, what does it do? It transforms us, transforms me. As Jesus comes and asks the question, we are transformed. What a Christmas reminder for us, right? What did Jesus come to do? came to stand in our place. You know, and as we close, as we uh, hear a message like this, as we think on the purpose of Christ's coming at Christmas and then his coming death, that would happen, and now we look back upon, it's only appropriate that we close with communion, right? It's only appropriate that we close with the ordinance that Jesus gave us as a tangible way to remember these realities, and maybe today, as we, uh, as we even begin to take communion, it's a way that God has given us to be reflective, to examine our own hearts before the Lord, to be, examine our own hearts uh, with, in our relationships with one another. And maybe today, as we come to the table, it's a day that we need to call out for mercy. Maybe because you never have and you need to be saved. Maybe because you're stuck in your sin and... You need Jesus' merciful help. Maybe you need to call out for mercy as you embrace suffering. As we take the cup, it's our way to say, okay, Lord, I submit. Okay, Lord, I, I submit. I trust you. I trust your sovereignty. I trust your goodness. And as we take it, that's what we come to the Lord to remember what he did and how that affects us, how that affects us. You know, here at Redemption, as we take communion, it's uh, communion, it's for believers. It's for those who have repented of their sin, placed their faith in Christ, and are following him in obedience. You don't necessarily have to be a member of our church to do it, but you do have to be uh, a believer, a member of the church. And so we just ask that if you're not a believer today, uh, it honors the Lord just to let it pass you by. If uh, you're stuck in sin, you need some help, you realize and you're under conviction this morning, it would honor the Lord to just let it pass you by. And as you go and leave your offering and you go and make it right, we would love to be able to take communion as we express our unity with the Lord and with one another afterwards. And so what we're gonna do here is uh, I'm gonna call up our worship team. You can come on up here and, and uh, ushers are gonna come forward and we're gonna pass the elements around as we respond worshipfully. And so as you take it, if you're new with us today, they're stacked up. You just have to take both kind of like this. If you just take one, you'll only get the juice. But they're stacked up there. And so you can take them here. But I'd ask just hold on to it for a moment. I want you to, as we take this, just as in your seat, is just to spend some time with the Lord. 
reflecting on what he has done, on what you've heard, on how you would answer this question, what do you want me to do for you? And as we are reflecting, the team up here is going to begin to play and sing a song, and uh, in a little bit, we'll, uh, then I'll come back up and I'll lead us as we uh, take this together. So would you pray with me uh, now as uh, I know they're getting past, you can just pause them and let's just pray and prepare our hearts uh, right now. God in heaven, we bow before you, asking you, Lord, to uh, help us, that you would show us mercy now. Would you, by your spirit, be tender to us as we sit before you, as we sit before your goodness, as our mind heads to Calvary and what you did there on our behalf. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Worship now.